0: Growing a business is hard, but it does not have to be. Once a week, we take a break from the hustle and bustle in business to talk about innovations and what's new in the C-suite. This is the Fractional C-Suite Retreat, and I'm Joseph Frost. Pull up a seat at the fire, grab a drink, smoke a cigar, and just join me as we relax, learn, and get inspired. This retreat is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow with better marketing strategy. Welcome, everybody. Uh, today, my guest, he is a uh, great leader of people. He specializes in creating liquidity to pay estate taxes, uh, helps business owners save money. He is the director of special projects at Kimsa, and I'm excited to uh, have him on a show. Welcome, Chris Quant. How are you today? I'm doing great, Joseph. It's, it's great to be here. I'm excited. Yeah, I am too. I think uh, it's, it's a refreshing change of guests. We have a lot of fractional professionals and C-suite members but uh, this is an interesting topic that applies to everyone and I'm a, um, uh, really curious how how the conversation is going to go so I look forward to it yeah um, with that let's just jump in I mean what the first question I'd like to ask my guests is you know from a uh, from your perspective uh, what what's one of the biggest opportunities that C-suites uh, C-suite members are missing out on today
1: Um, I would say, uh, especially for C-suite members, the unique uh, employee retention strategies that are out there, usually when People are thinking of the conventional way of doing it. You know, you're either setting aside a bunch of cash to go towards a pension or some sort of benefit in the future, which might not be the best use of that capital. They might want to invest in new equipment or hiring more salespeople or something like that. And then the other option is giving away equity, which can also be unattractive to business owners. So at Kimza, we try to explore unique ways to, you know, make some incentive for people to stick around for a long time, but without taking up a bunch of cash flow or having the owners give up equity that they may not want to.
0: So what are some of those uh, alternatives? Yeah, the, the one we
1: primarily use, it actually involves insurance and it's getting a bank to lend you the money to pay the premiums for the insurance we call it premium financing in the industry and essentially how it works is the bank lends money. And there's a bunch of different ways you can structure this. The bank lends money to pay for the insurance premiums. The company may need, may or may not need to put down some collateral, but a lot of times they're just paying the interest on uh, that bank financed premium. And then what they can say to their key people is say, hey, if you stick around for the next 10 years or so and meet certain KPIs, we'll pay you this additional benefit in retirement. And because we're using a life insurance policy, that money comes out tax-free to them. So, you know, depending on their age, if they're younger, that's that's a lot better for the economics of the strategy, uh, but it can be up to a hundred thousand or more in, in tax-free income uh, in retirement to incentivize these guys to stay.
0: So you're using the insurance vehicle to kind of offset some of the tax Ramifications. Uh, I'm assuming it's some sort of kind of front loaded insurance policy and that's why you use the bank to finance it so you can keep your cash low but then you're just paying a, a, a long term debt service on that uh, from a cash flow standpoint that's the, that's the play.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different ways to design it, uh, depending on uh, what the business owner's goals are for the strategy, but typically we front end load it as much as possible, and the IRS actually only allows you to put in a certain amount of money to for the insurance policies, otherwise it kind of is viewed as a tax haven. And so we go right up to that limit that the IRS allows. And then that, uh, that money in the policy begins to compound. And over time, the policy itself, the cash value can pay off the loan that the bank made. And the company is really only making interest payments. Gotcha. You can get between probably four to eight times leverage doing it that way and uh, one of the baseline strategies is just having the employer contribute half of the premium and then the bank contributes half for the first five years of the policy funding and then years six through ten the bank is actually taking over and paying the entire premium so the the business owner puts in about one-fourth of the amount that's contributed and it works out really nicely and that's available to pretty much, uh, anyone it's, uh, it's not something that you have to get any loan documents for. There's no personal guarantees, uh, nothing like that. So it's more available than people think.
0: And what is the, uh, the, the, the actual retention that that does then in your experience, is, is that a, is that attractive well, to the right people?
1: I, uh, I can't say that I've been around doing this for, <laughs> for 10 plus years. You might've been able to guess that, uh, but I, I think it's a, a strong incentive. And the nice thing is is that if the business, uh, if the person decides, hey, I have to take another opportunity or they wanna leave for whatever reason, that uh, policy becomes a business owned asset. So they can use the funds that would have gone to the
0: person in, in whatever they, way they see fit. So, um, so I take out a policy on my CFO and, mm-hmm. uh, she decides to take a new job. Uh, so that asset stays with, with the business. Yes. Uh, there's, there's an asset value within that insurance, uh, component Where's where's the insurance live then.
1: Yeah. So the, we use uh, permanent policies and I don't know if you're, uh, a big life insurance guy and and know a bunch about it. Most people aren't, but permanent policies have essentially two features. One is the cost of insurance. And so this is actually, you could think of it as a one-year term policy. Every year, the cost of insurance increases as you're probability of dying goes up and then the other part of the policy is referred to as the cash value and the cash value is usually tied in some way to a market index think like the S&P 500 so as the S&P 500 goes up that part of the policy is able to capture some of those gains but because it's a life insurance policy when the market has a down year and um, declines, there's actually a zero floor. So the policy doesn't lose money, but it also doesn't gain anything as well.
0: Yeah, so the insurance just goes away then in that scenario, the, the value. Uh, the, uh, the, growth the, in the, period, the
1: growth in the cash value goes away in that, in that scenario, but you're still paying for the insurance. The cost of insurance is included in the premium every year. We just well, I want- mean, I
0: guess when the, when the employee leaves, uh, in that scenario, do they take the insurance with them or?
1: Uh, no, that that all stays. So if there was a death, the the um the employer would get the death benefit, and then they also have access to the the cash values in there. And that starts to get a little bit out of scope for me. I typically <laughs> am working alongside professionals who are highly skilled in executive compensation and walking the client through it. So I could go a little more into uh, what I do as director of special projects, but I know enough to be dangerous. And then once it gets into the details, I bring in a professional who specializes
0: in this area. Yeah. I've talked to enough of uh, insurance agents and some of those professionals that the 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 tax uh, logistics and strategies and intertwining it's a pretty amazing what can be done these days and uh, uh, it's it's effective um, but you do need somebody who knows what they're doing to help you walk through it
1: yeah there's there's a a lot of people out there who are are doing this improperly or or doing premium finance for people who you know, shouldn't be doing premium finance. It's it's typically best that the person is able to pay the premiums, but they're just using the bank to, uh, you know, make it a little bit more of an effective strategy. Whereas some people like to figure out ways where their client can get a ton of insurance using premium financing, but they wouldn't be able to purchase that amount of insurance on their
0: own. Yeah, it is interesting. I'd never heard of the, the bank finance premiums. That's a uh... Yeah, it's uh, just another it, lever for for leverage to, to make it return. Yeah, more, I suppose
1: it's it's been around uh, about 20 years or so, yeah. and it's it's really a product of the low interest rate environment that we find ourselves in. So you can borrow, you know, bank money fairly low. However, I think that once interest rates go up, which I have not experienced in my lifetime, it's pretty much been in a downward trajectory since the 80s before I was around, Uh I believe that as bond yields go up with, uh, you know, interest rates you're paying at the bank, because all interest rates flow together, you're going to, you know, these strategies would probably still pencil because they're able to get more of the guaranteed return portion of the policy. And even though the financing costs have gone up. Yeah. But, but we'll have to see.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's good. Well, then let's talk a little bit about what you do at, at Kimsa as uh, special projects. Talk talk me through that a bit.
1: Yeah. So I would say at the start of an engagement with a business owner, and typically when I'm brought in, it is a, a business owner who's probably has a net worth of five million or more for for me to get involved. We do service. Uh, uh, Business owners who have smaller businesses, but typically for all the strategies I implement, it's about 5 million to get involved. And I work alongside a CFP, a certified financial planner, and we take the client through a discovery process, takes between an hour and an hour and a half, essentially getting some financial details, details about their goals, you know, and uh, get a nice picture of of, uh, who they are and, and where they're going and then we plug that into an algorithm and it spits out you know between, between 10 to 20 different areas of planning that may be relevant to the client and some of these areas we do in house like asset management we have a CFA who manages portfolios for people that's a chartered financial analyst and then we also uh, you know, have deep insurance expertise. So in those areas, we're typically doing a lot of that in-house. But when it comes to advanced estate planning or tax credits that they should be taking advantage of or how to structure their business to be most tax efficient, usually at that point, we bring in other specialists that we work alongside. And I'm the liaison between the client and those specialists. And know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to do it all myself.
0: Uh, Are you working mostly local or uh, virtually outside of Portland?
1: We, uh, so we started out in 2019 when I joined and everyone was essentially in the Portland office and There was a large exogenous shock, COVID, that uh, caused everyone to uh, disperse a bit. Uh, People who wanted to live uh, other places chose to do so. And so now we're spread out. We have some people in Portland. We have people across the river in Washington. We have people in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and Texas. So we're spread out. I would say most of our clients are from one of those places. It's nice, especially when you're managing, uh, you know, someone's finances and putting together a plan to, to meet them in person at least once. But, uh, you know, after the first meeting, they generally for convenience, uh, meet primarily virtually, but if, you know, we, we don't really have any limits to where we can do business with people pretty much anywhere across the country.
0: So one of the, uh, things that I think, uh, you have in common with some of our fractional professionals is that, uh, we're all looking to s- talk with business owners. That's a, an audience that we feel we can serve just like you can as fractional CMOs or CTOs or CFOs. And I'm curious, how, how, what are some of the tactics that you've seen that have been a- successful um, in getting in front of um, qualified business owners?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I really like to work with partners uh, such as yourself who do great work for business owners and who can bring value to my clients. So I like meeting. And then also within what we do, there's estate planning attorneys and other people that we actually need to implement the strategies that we're putting together for our clients. So I try to Prioritize meeting with those people, CPAs, estate planning attorneys, um, you know, even other investment professionals who don't necessarily do the work we do, those would be the best uh, referral sources for us. But then outside of the core competencies that we have, you know, I like to meet with uh, EOS people are great. Uh, I know a lot of EOS guys, uh, leadership consultants uh, we work a lot with, uh, PEOs, professional employment organizations. Uh, some of them are structured as ASOs, administrative service organizations, and they essentially take, uh, all the HR and payroll and benefits responsibilities away from, uh, the employer who probably didn't get into business to do all of those things. And, uh, manage it themselves. So pretty much just any professional who is, uh, you know, working with business owners and does great work for them.
0: Yeah. Um, that's the, where the majority of uh, business to business business normally comes from is, is word of mouth referrals. Uh, do you guys have, or do you have a particular, uh, methodology about going out and building those relationships and staying in touch to generate those referrals? uh I, that's what i find is interesting everybody's a little different about how they approach that part of uh their marketing um some are more uh rigid with here's what i do it's once a quarter it's this this and that and some are just kind of you know kind of happenstance if i bump into somebody it works out like what's your approach
1: yeah uh that's a great question i typically like to start with a Zoom call like this just because it's pretty convenient and uh, see if I connect with them. Sometimes you just can tell you're not connecting well or they don't share your values and, uh, uh, you know, rarely, but most of the time it goes well. And then after that, I I generally try to schedule something in person so we can meet face to face. Uh, I don't think people generally refer out their Greatest clients, which are the people I'm trying to work with after a 25-minute uh, Zoom call with me. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a, at that point in uh, uh, my salesmanship yet to to get people to do that. But I like to go meet with them in person. Uh, you know, learn a little bit more about what they're looking for and see what the the best synergies are between what I'm doing and what they're doing, and then you know, just try to keep a consistent cadence of reaching out. I don't want to inorganically, you know, come up with reasons to, to reach out, but just making sure that we're, we're connecting on a, on a regular basis. And I'm, I'm keeping them top of mind when I'm meeting with clients that could
0: have uh, problems that they could solve. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how the EOS implementers and uh, other maybe strategic consultants, uh, how, how they have felt about bringing in a, a tax you know, uh, strategist like yourself into their clients? Is that something that they see um, the need pretty clearly, or do they kind of have to be nudged where they have to start asking if there's a need?
1: I, I think it just depends on how we're brought in. I would say the, the first topic I brought up, employee retention, especially mm-hmm. with the world we're living in right now, a very tight labor market. That is probably the path of least resistance for being brought in to uh, do some do some work on the Kims' side. And that gives us an opportunity to get to know the business owner, get to know the EOS implementer a little better. They can see how we work. And then once there's other opportunities for more advanced tax strategies, estate planning, if it's viable and things like that, that's probably when we would, uh, you know, go into those uh, areas of planning.
0: Yeah, I see that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, do you get a chance to work in your uh, history with any fractional professionals?
1: Yeah, I would say fractional CFOs. Uh, they are in alignment uh, with what we do, trying to be as tax efficient as possible you know, within the business. We don't work within the business as much, so that, that is not something where they are competing with us directly, but they understand and value the work we are doing. Um, that the others the other um, fractional professionals like CMOs I would say that when we're going through and talking with clients in general terms about how their business is going and what some of the challenges that they're facing we don't stick primarily just to our area we, we like to you know get them to tell us the story of their business because a lot of times it unlocks insights that are you know standard discovery process doesn't do. So I, yeah, I would uh, probably ask some questions and if they were having a, a marketing issue or a sales issue, maybe bring in a, a fractional marketing or sales professional to work with them.
0: Yeah, I've got to imagine you hear a lot of the retention employee related uh, challenges right now. Uh, are there other key challenges that you've heard recently that kind of across uh, the board or any insights that you've seen many of the businesses trying to overcome or opportunities even that they're looking at
1: yeah well uh last year about a year ago or maybe a little less than that the uh folks in dc they came out with what their plans were to uh change some of the areas of the tax code Mm -hmm. and that generated a lot of uh you know they 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 helped us a bit with business development there because yeah. people were worried about what was going to happen there was a lot of different things going around like the wealth tax or lowering the estate tax exemption it's currently at 25 million if you're married about 12 and a half million if you're a single filer and so if they lowered that to 5 million or even lower than that it, a lot of people who Weren't subjected to federal state taxes would now be within that window, and so that was something that drove people to, uh, you know, do some planning that they may have been putting off. And we understand people. What we do it requires people to think about their mortality, to to do some planning work that may not be you know the most fun use of their time i I understand the the hesitancy or the desire to procrastinate doing it but uh you know anytime there's word going around that the tax rules are going to change that's always a nice uh incentive for people to to reach out to us and, and see what we can do on the tax side
0: yeah is a lot of your work or any of your work uh driven by kind of exit planning Yeah,
1: that's that's a that's a great time for us to be involved, not just making sure that the business owner when they are exiting that they have enough to live off of, you know, making sure that we understand what their expected burn rate is and retirement and knowing that they're you know, selling the asset that has generated most of the cash flow for their entire life. You know, what can we do to re- replace or replicate that cash flow? How can we sell the business in the most uh, tax-effective way possible? Are they charitably inclined? What sort of, you know, charitable vehicles You know, that people have heard of? Charitable remainder trusts, donor-advised funds. There's one I like called a, a pooled income fund which is a little bit of a blend between those. And all those do is give the client or the business owner a tax deduction and allow them to have income for the rest of their life, depending on what the structure is. And most people are just unaware that they have these options and their team of advisors aren't, aren't you know, bringing it to them. So that's that's where we come in.
0: What are some of the more um, interesting exit strategies to, for owners to, to you know, minimize tax or maximize? The- yeah, the there's of-
1: um, there's a few things that uh, that we like. There's always the ESOP, ESOP which is the Employee stomp Stock Ownership Program, where I forget always what the, the acronym stands for. but Essentially, it's selling your business to your employees. There's a lot of uh, tax benefits for doing that. You usually receive warrants, uh, so long-term stock options, essentially, so that you retain some piece of the company or get uh, have some sort of exposure to the growth. Uh, once the sale is completed, that's a very tax-efficient way of doing it. There is a, another. Uh, not, it, are you familiar with 1031 exchanges, yeah. like for real estate? So you mm-hmm. sell a piece of real estate, you find a replacement property and then you 1031 to defer the capital gain. There is another structure that's a 453, section 453 deferral. And that essentially allows the client to use a similar structure to a 1031, but for any sort of investment or usually equities like a, a typical stock portfolio. So they, another entity essentially assumes the sale. And then that those proceeds are managed in a brokerage account by the financial advisors. And you can defer the uh, capital gain burden uh, about 30 years. So that one is pretty cool. That's where I really have to bring in the specialists because I know enough to uh, tell you that. But once it gets into more details, I always make sure that the specialists
0: are involved. Does that have to be, does that have to do with the opportunity zones or is that just more generic?
1: Um, No, that's, that's been around longer than the opportunity zones. Opportunity zones are another way that uh, people can take advantage of that. And we have some opportunity zone specialists that, uh, that we would work with if someone was considering
0: using that vehicle. Okay. Um, Interesting. There's so many uh, different things. I can only imagine how you try to keep up with them all.
1: Yeah, I have I have some nice uh, flow charts that, uh, that would hurt your eyes to see where we could figure out what quali- clients qualify for. And then after you figure out what is economically viable for them, you then have to figure out what is in alignment with their goals. You know, for example, there might be a business owner who doesn't want to turn their kids into the Kardashians and uh decides that they're not sure they want the kids to inherit all this money and they might Mm -hmm. also not be too opposed to paying the taxes you'd be surprised how many people are fine with uh paying the taxes feel it's you know they've benefited a lot from being american and and would like to uh You know, pay some of what they've earned throughout their life back so that, uh, you know, we can all have roads and things like that. So really figuring out what the client wants and then going over the different options that they are economically
0: qualified for uh, is uh, a big part of what we do at Kimza. Good. Well, let's switch gears for a bit. Uh, We both share uh, an alma mater at the University of Kansas. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. How do you think uh, our team's going to do this weekend?
1: I am uh, cautiously optimistic. I've been – I I went to – so they won back. It was 08, right, the last time they won a championship.
0: Uh-huh. Sounds
1: So 09 right. was my freshman year there. So okay. I've been ever since uh, – Ever since my freshman year, I've been really hoping and waiting for them to uh, finally win a championship. I I believe you know mathematically they're they're favored to win, but I've uh, I've seen a lot of tournaments in my day, and I, I know that until the 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 championship game, when you you win that, anything is possible. So we'll see. I'm I'm very excited for watching it with uh, my family this weekend. My brother just moved back from texas and he is a, a fellow jayhawk as well and so we're gonna watch it uh, probably in the comfort of a home i think we might get thrown out of a bar if we uh, if we go there because we we tend to yell at the tv yeah we've
0: got uh this 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 episode will probably air uh i think next week it might be right after the tournament so mm-hmm. we may either be uh li- everybody listening laughing at us or uh, yeah digging right on good job um, my youngest daughter is um, doing a college trip. She's a junior this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are driving through uh, Colorado. We are gonna look at schools there. And then we're going to drive over to University of Tulsa, which is where I got my undergrad. And then we're mm-hmm. going to go to KU uh, on the way back to Omaha. And that's uh, so she's excited to take a look at KU as well as those other schools. So yeah, I might, have a, she, I might have a Jayhawk in, in the future. We'll see. Yeah,
1: we'll see. Are you taking her to CU Boulder in Colorado? Or?
0: Yeah, so I've got two kids in Colorado now. One at Colorado School of Mines and one at uh, Denver University. But we are going to see Denver University, Colorado College, CU Boulder, and Colorado State. So we're going to take a look at those four schools over there.
1: All right. Well, it, it might be Kansas is a be- KU has a beautiful campus. Everyone's probably picturing it completely flat and yes yeah. it's, it's literally the only hill in kansas and <laughs> and true. you have to and all the student housing is or at least where i lived was at the bottom of the hill so there was a an extra hurdle to getting to class having to walk up this hill every day but it, it really is a beautiful campus it's uh tough to compare it in terms of beauty to to colorado but.
0: did you get to watch a lot of games uh basketball games in the stadium
1: yes i i was fortunate uh i was able to go to a lot of student section games and then uh, a friend of mine had uh season tickets through their family my i think it was my senior year there it was when Embiid and wiggins were on the team and so we got to see that team which was amazing I'm sad that they didn't end up working out with all of Embiid's injuries, but I got to go to a ton of games. How how about you?
0: I've only been to one game and I thought it was the most amazing experience. The crowd was so incredible and you're packed into this small high school gym. It feels like, Uh, but man, it was, it was uh, electrifying. It was wonderful. I'd like to go back. I, I, when I went to school there, uh, it was, it was uh, getting my MBA but I was a non-traditional student. So I, I you know, I graduated my undergrad, I was working full-time and then I went back to get my MBA. And so I didn't, I wasn't on campus. I didn't have that, you know, undergrad lifestyle, but I was able to make it to one game while I was going to school there. So that was fun.
1: Yeah. They're really a great time. Uh, it, it's, I love all the, the traditions and it's, it's really fun.
0: And what's going to happen is the big 12 kind of dismantling again, or what's I, I don't keep up with all that stuff, but
1: yeah, there's, there's a lot of football that interferes with basketball. <laughs> yeah. We had, we had Missouri leaving. Uh, that was a pretty fun game. It's, I think it still ranks one of the best games ever. Their last Missouri Kansas game at Allen Fieldhouse. house. Uh, we, we were down, think almost 20 going into the second half and came back and won it in the last moments. And mm-hmm. it broke, it broke decibel records. So I know they left, but I have a suspicion that they're, they this year uh, played each other. And I think they're going to continue to play each other. Cause that, that rivalry goes up. back to a uh, civil war, you know, so <laughs> it's yeah. pretty intense. And then I, I think another team left this year, but I, can't remember that. but yeah, the the Big Twelve, uh, you know, is subject to what happens uh, in football.
0: Yeah. Well, what else do you like to do for fun?
1: Um, I'm a big reader. I every uh, new referral partner or even some clients I, I meet, I always ask them what their their favorite books are. I love uh, personal development books. I usually listen to those on Audible. And then I'm a big history buff. I'm reading about uh, LBJ. It's a book called A Path to Power, written by Robert Caro. And it goes over his early years. And there's a, a four-part series that Robert Caro has uh, going through all the Lyndon Johnson years. And he's really a, an interesting guy. So I love uh, U.S. history. Um and then I, yeah. I play some tennis as well. Uh, trying to think of other hobbies. Love traveling.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm reading. I'm not reading a book right now, but I'm reading a lot about the Stoics. So I've been kind of studying a lot At, of uh, Seneca, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, and you know a handful of other names out there. And uh, it's it's enlightening. It's very insightful, and some of the just the very common sense approach to philosophy of your everyday life. Uh, It's such a great takeaway. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe I appreciate it because I'm a little older in my life now, but just a lot of acceptance, a lot of, you know, it it is what it is. And uh, it takes a lot of that anxiety and, and uh, angst away that I, I had in younger years about things. So I've been trying to share that with my kids more too. I think, I wish I would have been a little more uh, stoic in my early years. It gives a fresh perspective on things.
1: Yeah. I I wish I would have listened to my parents and grandparents on everything, (laughs) though. I didn't get into reading until later in life. It is looking back on on all the advice I was getting. That would be what I would encourage kids is either your parents know something. Do you read the original text? I think it's Letters from a Stoic or something by Seneca, or do you like reading more modern books that are written
0: about it i'm more into there's actually a a email that comes out once a day called the daily stoic so Mm. i get that every morning about 8 a.m uh and that's generally right about when i'm having daughter uh, coffee with my daughter before i take her to school um she can drive to school but sometimes it's like three blocks away so Mm -hmm. um the so we, we, we just kind of read it together. So that's a chance to just touch base once a week on something. Sometimes they're better than others. I just saw today a list of, you know, four or five of the original books, uh, letters, and a couple others. And so I was going to buy them and get them on my desk because I, I think I would really enjoy some of the original text and not just, you know, a digest or someone else's summary of what was said.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a great theory called the Lindy theory, which is essentially a book that was written 2,000 years ago, has a higher probability of being around in the next 2,000 years than a book written 10 years ago. And it, it, essentially, the lesson is you should pay attention to old texts that have made that uh, uh, stood the test of time. And uh, my biggest thing is I have a hard time reading th- the old English style. So I... yeah. Yeah. I just read, uh, the rise and fall of the Roman empire by Edward Gibbon written in 1776. And that was a a struggle. It's supposed to be beautiful writing, but I, it's hard for me as someone born in 1990 to, uh, to follow it. Like I could a book, you know, written in this century.
0: Yeah. I've read, I can't think of what it is, but I've read a couple of books like that where they were written a long, long time ago and it's tough. Um, I think, you know, you get a certain way through the book and then you're, you're able to start digesting a little better. Mm-hmm. Um, but it stands out as being almost foreign a language as you're reading it. I've read books that are kind of poetic in that way as well. Like a, kind of the writing it almost poetically on purpose. It's not really broken English or old English. It's just different than you normally would read something. Mm-hmm. And those can be very hard to, uh, to get through, but, um, uh, I don't know. I don't find enough time to read is the other problem. Well, like I read my phone too much, which I, you know, in some cases it's reading uh, depends on what I'm spending my time on other cases. It's nice just to put it down, pick up a actual physical book and Mm -hmm. read that's a totally different experience than reading a a short article on stoicism on my phone. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: I I like to make sure I make time, but I also have no kids and, uh, you know, other than work, not, not as many responsibilities. So it's, I'm able to, to make time Uh, what sort of, uh, where do you get your news, especially news related to, you know, fractional professionals or marketing professionals or, you know, just news in general.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um. We we do a lot of um, internal peer to peer conversations around marketing related stuff. So when it, whether it be uh, you know less news and more what's what's a new tactic or something you've heard about, and it usually will generate in that conversation, and someone will say, "Well, there was a really good article on this, or you should check this out." And so that seeds you know, where I go looking for things. Um, I'm not a big consumer of of you know the, the trend of the day, and I don't, I don't sign up for a bunch of tactical digests. There's not a. I like Seth Godin as an author. Mm. Uh, he's done some really nice work. Uh, his most recent book is a few years old now. Uh, I think it's This Is Marketing, or What Is Marketing, one of the two. But uh, great book. You know, he puts out a blog or blurb every day, almost his digest. I used to subscribe to stuff like that, but it, it just you know kind of becomes noise and not really mm. informative. Um, so I rely on the the insights of our team to generate a lot of that. I'm also uh, the founder of a fractional professionals association. So we have a monthly meeting and we have a group of fractional uh, peers that come in, not just CMOs. So CTOs, CFOs, CIOs, COOs, et cetera. Right. And we'll do breakouts. And a lot of times we'll ask, you know, what have you learned? What's new? What's different? And so we'll get, again, insights from other fractionals about what they're reading or what they're seeing or what they're doing and that kind of seeds those insights. So I get more of that, more of that value, I think, from peers and networks than I get from any external website or other Mm -hmm. resource.
1: Yeah. Nothing like meeting people who are actually doing the same work as you and getting their real live insights. Uh,
0: I think that that's hard to replicate. Yeah, it is. Um, One of the other questions or, or uh, topics we can talk a little bit about and be interested in on your take uh, I'm spending some time really studying leadership and I'm curious like what are some of the characteristics that you find good leaders possess and there might be people in, within your organization that bring it to mind or even uh, some of the business owners and entrepreneurs that you've worked with what are some of the leadership characteristics that you've seen
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, integrity is obviously a a top one. You know, we, in our industry, we are, you know, the word fiduciary is thrown around a lot, but that's just essentially doing what's in the best interest of the client. And in the financial industry, we have a ton of conflicts of interests and incentives to not do what's in the best interest of the client. You know, we could sell them uh, higher fee products, we could put them in things that are unsuitable. There's all sorts of different ways you could do it, but making sure that we are structured and that the leadership has structured our business to ensure that the client is getting the exact uh, solution that meets their needs. So that I, I think is is really important. Open mindedness. So within our company, we have a, a diverse array of different opinions on how we should attack planning, and I would say that everyone on the team does a great job of uh, you know listening to other people's viewpoints and being willing to. Uh, you know, even change their positions uh, mm-hmm. in, in the face of new information, and that starts at the top. I think you have to be setting an example, you know, at the business owner level to uh, to do that. So, those are those are a couple couple things. How about how about you? I'd love to hear your um, your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, no, those are two good ones. Um, uh, characteristics. Uh, I, I was thinking. there's a few that really stand out to me. And so being able to inspire, I think is a, is a, a trait and characteristic that, that, that I, I feel good leaders possess. Mm -hmm. Um, and that can be done in different ways. It doesn't have to be some super eloquent speaker that inspires you. It can be a hard worker that just inspires you. So, but that ability to inspire others, I think is a, a characteristic, um, then also a, a developer of people. Um, I think good leaders are, are innately able to, and, and desire to develop others around them to be better. Um, mm-hmm. uh, not just surrounding themselves, but really working and, and helping and, and growing people around them. I think um, having some, some sense of vision uh, and I think it, it, oftentimes vision and visionaries get kind of for uh, maybe put on this, uh, up in the clouds kind of vision, but I think of it more like just seeing maybe it's part of open mindedness, uh, mindedness a little bit, but seeing things that others don't see where you want to go with that, that, that role or that position and, uh, within the business, just being visionary in that way, not, not just doing the same thing over and over. Um, being good decision makers and not making necessarily good decisions, like, but just being able to make a decision and move yeah. forward, like that's a huge,
1: think, yeah. Being for many people, one thing I've learned is that conflict is pretty much inherent, especially when you're working on teams within a business. So, being able to flush through that content, that conflict, effectively where you know the, the team members are respecting each other's opinions. And then even if they don't agree on something, to make a commitment, even if it wasn't your idea and they're going against you, and to go with that commitment as a team. And that doesn't mean saying you know, sabotaging and saying, well, I told you guys, this was going to be a bad idea. You should have listened to my idea. No, it's, it's putting all of your effort into what was decided as a team and, and believing in the the decision that the team made.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, that's important. And for, for, I think for that leader to be able to make that decision before, but then for the other people that are watching that leader, if that doesn't happen, it sends the wrong message and it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, that's, that's a dangerous leadership role here.
1: Yeah. And uh, related to leaders, I'd love to ask you when you're brought in to engage a client, do you find often that they, you know, they like the idea of ramping up their marketing and bringing in an, an outsourced professional, but when it comes to implementing the recommendations that you're making, you know, things slip sideways a bit and they're not willing to do the work on their end. Uh, necessary. I've, I've talked to EOS guys about that and they say, you know, it is slightly common where business owners say, Hey, I want to get right people, right, right place, you know, have some accountability, have better use of our data. But then when it comes to actually doing things and changing old habits, uh, it falls apart a bit. So love to hear your experience.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good insight. Um, And I've seen it both ways. It does start with that owner uh, because if if the owner's willing to give up that responsibility and let somebody else run, then it works out really well. But if the owner is not, um, he or she still wants to do that role, even though they hire somebody else, it becomes really difficult. So the number one thing that uh, I tell business owners when they're considering a fractional professional, you've got to be willing to take off the hat and give it to somebody else that you trust and that you feel will do it better than you and if you can do those two things find that person uh, that you can trust and do it better than you then then it'll be a successful engagement but if you don't trust them meaning i've been burned by marketing a dozen times i've hired the wrong person the agency is always for me like whatever the trust factor is if they can't regain that trust in the person doesn't matter who you hire they'll always be second guessing. Is it the right decision? Do they really know what they're doing? Are they looking out for my best interests? Um, So they have to be able to build that trust. And then they have to feel like that competency of that person is going to be to do it better than they can on their own. And Mm -hmm. in marketing, particularly most business owners are naturally because they've been in their role as a business owner from, you know, for a long time, either they started the business inherited the business or just, you know, grown up in the business. They're pretty good marketers. They understand who the customers are. They understand uh, who their competitors are. They know their product and service better than anybody else. They've probably been selling most of the big deals for a very long time. They're good marketers. Um, and for them to find somebody they feel that can do it better than them, um, it's it's maybe an ego play or uh, they just really need to find somebody that can do it better than them. And that's where that fractional CMO comes into play because a CMO should be able to do it better than you as an owner, but a marketing director or a more tactically focused person who hasn't had a breadth of exposure in the real world or outside, maybe some, some uh, niche opportunities, isn't probably going to do marketing better. And so that's where they've kind of faltered in the past is trying to find it. And you say this, see the same thing in CFOs and CTOs and CIOs. It just uh, differs a bit, but trust and competency are the, the two things that, as a fractional leader, you need to be established with that owner first, and then with the rest of the people on the C-suite. Because they all then the same thing comes up. Like the CFO needs to believe that the CMO is going to use make good use of the money that they're asking for. The CTO needs to make sure we're going to integrate and the martech that you're recommending actually is good and better than what we have. If, you know, the salesperson needs to respect the marketing, and then they need to align and integrate. Um, so those leadership characteristics are really important Uh, in a fractional leader, just as they are in a a full-time leader.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, in our industry, what's, what's tough is most of our business owner clients, they have other advisors either that they continue to work with and they just handle investments or something that we don't necessarily need to make changes to, or, you know, they decide not to work with them anymore because we, you know, uh, uncover some some malpractice or are able to do things more efficiently. It it's just tough. There's such a wide spectrum of people who call themselves uh, financial advisors or financial planners. It's mm-hmm. tough for me to say to someone, hey, you know this. You're really going to the Red Lobster of this, and and you need to be, you know, I don't know, at a, a Morton's or whatever you're you know overpriced steak houses for <laughs> for the the services that you need it's hard for me to distinguish the difference and what we try to do is we're we're fee based and fee based means different things to different people. So we do charge fees on investment portfolios, but we're also fee-based in that when we start doing the planning work, we just start, we just charge a fixed monthly fee to, to do that planning work so that the client knows, hey, you know, these guys are gonna take a look under the hood, see what you have, diagnose. And then it could be that they've done everything correctly. They are as tax efficient as possible and there's nothing we can do. And if you're paying, you know, three or $4,000 to get that second opinion, I I would still say that's, that's worth it. And, uh, it, but it is, it is tough because I don't, it, it's not good to, to poo poo someone's other advisor. And, uh, that's not something that's going to win you business, you know, essentially inferring that they made a stupid decision yes. uh, with a, a guy they like to golf with.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, your business is hard. For, ours is similarly, similarly hard. We're generally in our opportunities not going in uh, and, and um, looking at somebody else's work. Uh, it's, it's normally the absence of anybody doing what we're doing ever in the organization. Okay. So it's a 5 to $50 million organization. You know, The owner's been wearing the marketing hat or the salesperson or they have a junior market when I say junior marketing director, marketing manager, maybe not a C-level strategic thinker. Um, And that person stays on board. And usually we are working hand in hand and developing, once again, back to the leadership, developing that person to be a better marketer, more strategic. Um, And so we're not in a position of second guessing someone else's decisions on the team. Now, they've already made years of bad decisions, generally, that's across the board. Uh, part of that's just because marketing is a one big gamble anyway like you you gotta it's a uh, you gotta always be testing so there's going to be a lot of failures so it's really easy to point out something that didn't work like that was stupid why'd you do that well we just tried it it didn't work and like you know that's okay yeah uh, so we don't pick apart past marketing we just try to look at what what's the opportunity today what's it look yeah. like moving forward
1: reminds me of thomas edison what did he say something like i i didn't fail i found 900 and 80 ways not to make a light bulb. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's interesting. When would you uh, do you consider marketing agencies to be competitors, or are there times where they are better fits, or do they actually bring you in? I'd love to know the relationship with a, a traditional creative agency.
0: Yeah, I mean, agencies are are generally really good on the you know, brand creative work. Um, they're not very strong traditionally, in, in my opinion, on the strategy, like their strat, the strategy of an agency is how do I sell more agency stuff to you? <laughs> uh, cause they have a full team of copywriters and designers and photographers. And, you know, they just have that group of people and they got to sell work to them all the time. So when they go in, of course, you're gonna need a new brand, a new design, new logo, new this, new that, new that. Where a strategist like us, we come in just like more like, a fiduciary partner. Mm -hmm. We have nothing else to sell. We want to identify what the right opportunities are. And then when we realize, okay, we need some strong creative work. Let's start working with an agency. We're able to oversee that agency in a different way than a a traditional owner would. We know what they don't know. We know what the owners don't know. We know how those agencies work. Uh, We know what, you know, what things should cost. Um, Mm -hmm. We know how to get the most out of those engagements and generally either save money or or get more for the same dollars. Um, I think they would consider us competitors because they oftentimes cloak strategy uh, as one of their offerings, but it's really just, how do we sell more agency stuff at the end of the day? That's in my opinion, maybe it's a little harsh. but
1: well, any of your agency referral partners watching this, they might be less inclined. With these I have
0: less. Things. I don't have many of those <clears throat> agency referral partners now. We have a lot of what I would consider kind of more niche and boutique agencies. Mm-hmm. Someone who's really good at SEO, or really good at AdWords, or really good at social media, and those agencies, when they stay in their tactic lane, they're great, and they'll bring us in. We're we're complementary mm-hmm. in the same sense because they they want to. They need somebody who can build an overall strategy that sees how they can optimize the SEO piece, or how they can optimize the pay per click. Um, so th- we have a lot of those agencies that are referral partners that we bring into our clients when it makes sense, and they bring us in when they need help on the strategy side. Mm-hmm.
1: And what percentage of your engagements are focusing on the digital marketing, and, and what are you know maybe more traditional? I don't I don't know what the different categories are,
0: but. Yeah, just about everybody's doing some form of digital these days. It's pretty hard to imagine a business that doesn't have a website or a social media presence or uh, an app or some sort of uh, reviews. So digital is is ever everywhere. So um, now there are certain businesses that are real heavy in digital, meaning that's where they're spending tens of thousands of dollars a month on AdWords or mm-hmm. uh, real robust content marketing strategies where they're uh, spitting out blogs and social posts. And, uh, and you know, those are some of the more SaaS-based business, technology-based business, consumer direct businesses. Um, a lot of the, more, the traditional kind of B2B business models, you know, less of that but there might be a big email component. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, every, we look at every business as, as different. And we start with the customer and, and that's what drives the tactics we choose to you know, suggest. So when we talk to um, customers of yours, as a good example, mm-hmm. I talk to five to 10 of your customers uh, that recently started doing work with you in the last 12 months, I'm going to gain some insights into when do they start to look for a tax specialist or strategist or a new financial plan, or when did they start looking? What was going on in their business? Uh, We call those triggers. What's triggering it could be, you know, exit strategy, could be retention problem. Like some of the things you point out could be triggers. And then when through the interview process, what did you do when you started looking? Where did you go? What were you looking for? And then they'll tell you. I Googled or I went to my, my business uh, peer group or I uh, asked my neighbor or I was golfing and I, you know, I ran into somebody. You start to discover what the path uh, of that or called journey, the buyer journey is. Um, that buyer journey then gives us the tactical cues. Okay, so you never even searched on Google once for tax strategists? No, never. Okay, well, we would never then want to have a digital strategy for you that was based on SEO or pay per click. Mm-hmm. Then we asked things like, what were some of what were you afraid of? What were some of the concerns you had? Well, I thought I was, you know, uh, thought I was going to be overcharged, or I thought it was going to be pay some huge commission, and it would take me twenty years to ever recoup the upfront fees. Or you know, these are real concerns that people have. And then, what were some of your Uh, Things that you were looking for. Well, I was definitely looking for somebody local and I wanted somebody that had done this before in my industry. And, uh, you know, whatever those answers are, those give you insights then into your messaging. So, between those, what the customer tells you with five to 10 interviews, we can generally get a, a really good start for what the triggers are, what the tactics are, what the messaging should be. And most of the time, when you do that for a business owner, who's been in that business for you know, five, 10, 20 years, the answers to those three questions, what the triggers were, what the uh, what the journey is and what the decision criteria is, is completely different than it was when they started the business. So that's how you start building that trust. Like We actually are you know, a better option. We, we, we know how to do this, maybe not better, but different than you used to do. And therefore you build the trust and now you can start engaging them to, and to trust you on what to have and what, and how to execute.
1: Yeah. And is it usually pretty, do you have a system for reaching out to those customers or is it a, are they usually clients that the business owner is willing to, you know, have you reach out to for, for the purposes of extracting that information?
0: Yeah. We follow, um, uh, Adele Rivera, uh, Ravella, sorry. She has a book uh-huh. called uh, buyer personas. It's an, it's an old book. It's been around for probably 10 plus years. And um, she's been doing these buyer interviews is what they're called for for organizations for a long time. She's wrote the book. She talks about it. And the recommendation is the ideal person to talk to is not a customer, but it's somebody who's made a buying decision with your competitor within the last six to 12 months, because that's an unbiased uh, buyer journey. When you, the second best is with your customer. Now, there's some biases that come with your exit customers because maybe you knew them, maybe they were already in your sphere of influence, like, but you can still pull out really good insights, even though there's a little bit of bias there. What we do is ask for customers because those are much easier to come by than, you know, give me five people that didn't buy from you in the last year that did buy from your competitors that's that's a harder list for you to generate and for me to get in front of than tell me five people that bought from your last 12 months that I can talk to. You. So we start there. Um, and they're both equally valuable, but the preferred way is a competitor. Uh, similar someone who's bought from a competitor.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that that's really cool. Well, <clears throat> how, how do you uh, recommend I start or I implement uh, diagnosing, you know, if if clients are ideal fits for various uh, fractional professionals, maybe ones that you've interviewed on this podcast, because I would love to, I'm always looking to bring more value to clients. And I'm already in my daily business, you know, referring them to other professionals, sometimes ones that I'm working alongside with, sometimes ones where, you know, I'm not involved at all. So I'd love to
0: know. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I give a signature talk called uh, The Future is Fractional and it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's 30 to 60 minutes. I'd love to have the opportunity to give a talk to your um, clients you know, or even prospects, either in person or virtually about understanding you know, that the future is fractional. And I think it's the, the best opportunity for business owners today is take advantage of this, this great resignation with all these amazing fractional people out there They have to understand, you know, you got to take the hat off. You got to figure out how to trust them. What are the right criteria you need to look for? How do you hire them the right way? Um, And so I walk through that all in in my talk and um, that would be a great way to to introduce the concept. And it's not about marketing. When I give that talk, it's about the fractional professional as as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the takeaway is I've got this list of fractional professionals that are part of our association that I, I, I share with the, with the audience. So here's, you know, here's trusted vetted people that I know that you could start with if you have a need. And, uh, the, the feedback's been great on those talks.
1: I think you mentioned before, but what are the typical revenues where it makes sense to bring in a, a fractional professional as opposed to hiring someone full-time? And is there a level at which it doesn't make sense and you do need to bring someone in uh, full-time?
0: Yeah. Um, each uh, each kind of fractional area is a little different. Mm-hmm. So when I ask this question, and some of it's based on people's interest levels. So I, I had a CTO on the uh, or a CFO on the other day on the podcast, and you know he likes to work between one to fifteen million in revenue. He thinks that's where a fractional CFO makes a lot of sense for a company. Once they get above ten or fifteen million, they should have somebody full time in the seat. You now we say it's five to fifty million as a CMO who we look to serve. Um, but we serve people that have hundred plus million companies that just either needed someone in the interim or just have never had one before. And they need the first step to get to a full time. Um, there are some CMOs that I talked to that would rather work in the one to five or the startup world as a CMO, mm-hmm. uh, as long as it's well-funded, they can do that. Um, CTOs are, you know, they can come in as a, a fractional CTO on a, on a project based really on any size company um, or they'll come in and run a, you know, the the C, CTO role in large companies, fractional integrators, people that come in, and fractional operations people. Really, it's any size that uh, needs it. And so it's it's not easy to answer the question. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, when you think about strategy, usually most people that are in a strategic role inside of a business full time might be doing strategy. I'd say twenty to. 40% of the time, the other 60% of the time, it's probably full with tactical to do's. Mm-hmm. And so if you think of that mindset and you could separate the two, like we, we just need strategy from our fractional person. And then we need a full-time execution team member that's executing. Um, it changes the, the way you think about it. It's that's, and that's not a traditional way of doing it, but you know, the last thing that most of the CMOs that we work with want to do is they don't want to get in to the website and be posting blogs and doing social media tweets and uh, they want to be building the strategy and then developing internal team members to execute or finding the external team members that do and you can say the same thing with a cfo like they want to do really smart cfo work they don't want to be sitting in there inside quickbooks doing the the, the bookkeeping and accounts payable and accounts you know, receivable but some, the, but business owners as they grow they're like looking for these unicorns all along the way and um a better approach might be to separate, cut the head off the unicorn. and <laughs> <open>. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that uh, and so staying at a high at the high level is probably pretty important. And do you get dragged in? The uh, uh, scope creep happen uh, very often, or or attempted scope creep.
0: Yeah, it does happen. It probably happens in almost any professional services role. Scope mm-hmm. creep's an issue. Uh, fractional role for sure because you can do so much you have done so much. You, you've done everything from, you know, 20 years ago, tactical work your way up all, so you've done it all. So it's really easy, one, for the client to ask, because they're gonna naturally ask for more work, but it it can sometimes be a bad habit of the fractional leader to just jump into, okay, fine, I'm just gonna do that for, because I can. Mm-hmm. And when we bring people on our team, we train them on, you know, it, it, if you're going to build a good practice and be known as a strategic leader, you can't be doing tactical work. And so we have we've built coordinators into our system that help the CMOs. We've you know, we we instruct them on how to manage scope issues. Uh, it's a big it's a big deal um, in our business. Uh, and it's just, and I hear it every day with other fractional professionals. It's It's a big deal for them as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I even in our industry, uh, same thing. We,
0: it, I think it's bigger when you have businesses like ours and yours that are fee based that are not. Um, when I say fee based, so we we usually work, and most fractional professionals work for a flat dollar per month, not a mm-hmm. dollar per hour. Where agencies and other professional service firm like attorneys and uh, accountants, they'll be d- dollar per hour. So that. Scope creep is perfect for them. Just <laughs> more billables you know, yeah. for, for somebody who's at a flat monthly rate. You're, you know, you're kind of trying to manage that process.
1: Yeah. We are flat monthly rate as well. We're not billing people for emails or things like that. So it is, uh, it is tough to manage, especially because everyone on our team is, dedicated to bringing value and it it hurts us a little bit if if a client has a problem that isn't necessarily in our wheelhouse but we know that we can help them with you know it's uh i I try not to you know get on zoom and try to figure out people's uh, tech problems because they know i'm a millennial but you know if it is something (laughs) that i can get done for them and uh you know make their day easier I'll, i'll do it i one time i did uh during COVID I had a client who had COVID and they couldn't get groceries delivered and I did deliver groceries for them. So that's probably the highest level of scope creep that I've uh, experienced in my career. But I mean, that's, that, those are the things I think that that clients remember and uh, you know, uh, it, it, and, you know, might discourage them from, from going elsewhere. So.
0: Yeah. I, I, I'd have to think back, but I'm sure I've got some fun scope creep stories as well. Nothing pops to mind, though.
1: Yeah that that was a that was a funny one, but it was tough. Uh, I think it was when the the omicron was peaking, and there wasn't everyone was ordering uh, delivery groceries, and probably the people who were delivering the groceries all had it. So it was a tough time, uh, but uh, glad we looks like we're on the other side of that. And one other question on uh, for your role specifically: Are you wanting clients where it's a long-term engagement they have you on, and it's there's no set end date, or is it they're typically some sort of life cycle of you know you're brought in, you build out processes, you make sure someone is in place to you know do more of the tactical uh, work, uh, the administrative work, and then uh, exit out, or is it something where they are you know? calling upon you potentially in perpetuity?
0: Yeah, good question. So for our work at Your CMO, uh, we set a two-year goal for our clients, a marketing goal. So we're looking at uh, kind of a two-year picture. And then we use a series of quarterly sprints to get towards that goal, set priorities every 90 days. What do we need to do this quarter? What do we need to do the next quarter? Um, but we're also month to month. So our we offer a lot of flexibility to our clients The goal is we we want to be there, and get to that two year goal because that's also what the client is looking for, and and that makes sense. Um, We can get there sooner sometimes, and and then that means we we end the engagement, or we can get there and restart another two year goal. So we have clients that go that we've had for five plus years. We've had clients that uh, sometimes it's real clear that there's just a real short term project need, maybe three to six months. I just need an interim gap filled and we mm-hmm. can do that. That's not ideal. Ideal is 18 to 24 months. We're building something along the way so that when we exit, we've developed somebody internally that can manage what we've built or we've brought somebody in from the outside that can manage what we've built um, or we get to that 18 to 24 mark. We've done that, built, built it up. We've got the team that's managing that and then we, there's a new investment goal. Mm-hmm as long as the company is looking to, to pivot um, that's, that's a good need for a CMO. Cause you're always trying, there's just so much to learn and figure out or build. They're looking to build an internal team. That's a great re- reason to bring in a leader um, or they're just looking to scale. Like the really growth is, is, is a great focus. Mm-hmm. Then an investment in a CMO makes sense. If it's kind of a flat organic growth and not a whole lot of need, you know, that the, the, there's, there, there doesn't make as much sense. Uh, mm-hmm. That investment's not not smart.
1: And how many of these can you have going at once?
0: Well, um, our typical CMO is going to handle two to three engagements at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some CMOS that have been around for several years that have more, uh, but that's because they've got the scope has gone down to more of a maintenance. They just want to see them quarterly or. You know, once a month and just kind of maintain what they've got. And so they'll have maybe five, four, five, six uh, in that scenario, but two or three of them are really maintenance level. Um, but three kind of fully engaged fractional uh, and opportunities is about, it's a good number. Um, mm-hmm. The CMO is not getting, you know, not pulling their hair out, getting overworked. The client's getting a good amount of their time. That, you know, that's kind of a sweet spot. Mm-hmm.
1: And and going back to our, our labor market discussion earlier, is there do, do they have to bring you back in if the person that you trained internally or maybe even recruited decides to go to another opportunity or do you try to instill a culture where
0: yeah, that's a great, that's a great that question. doesn't happen? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. So I'll tell you that one of the in my signature talk that I share, one of the things that companies need to look for. When they hire a fractional professional, whether it be a CMO, CTO, or whatever, it's somebody who's committed to the craft of being full-time fractional. Because w- there's a lot of people out there that are fractional because they're in between their next full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what happens. They come on, they're through for months, and then they're, boom, I just got a full-time job. See ya. And you don't want that. Uh, and so we, because of the way we are set up, we're a franchise. Our CMOs are making a commitment to that way of life. They're they're signing franchise agreements. They're not looking for employment. They're definitely invested in building a practice, so they're less likely to take a full time gig. That doesn't mean that they might not get poached by the client. And so sometimes that happens. The client says, "Why don't you just stay with me full time?" And you know that has happened, um, or some other amazing opportunities happen. Uh, it's rare but we we are more likely to have cmo's that want that fractional lifestyle than other organizations that are out there.
1: Okay. And uh, who did, did you found your cmo sorry if i i should have done my more due diligence
0: but Yeah, I did. My business partner and I
1: founded it about 6 years ago. Okay. And the franchise model that that kind of creates some stickiness to where people have skin in the game. Is it skin in the game or do they like is there some sort of um, revenue share between the group or is it more the franchise goes towards they get to use your brand the marketing materials all that good stuff uh, and that's what they get for um,
0: investing in the
1: franchise fees
0: yeah the the franchise came about in the last couple of years mm-hmm. um, we were operating um, with uh, kind of okay kind of like a franchise, but without calling it a franchise or doing any of the exhaustive legal work to become a franchise. Mm-hmm. And so when we were realizing that we wanted to grow our business, we, we just wanted to either make a decision, we'll, we'll, we'll go all in on providing. Uh, so for us, what makes you a franchise is they're using your brand and they're using your mark. I think is what it's called. They're, they're some, there's significant operating expectations and control that we provide um, and they're paying us a fee for that, you know, access to those things. And we went to our CMO and said, do you want us to pull anything back? Do you want us to, and of course, yeah, don't charge us anything. Well, we, we can't do that, mm-hmm. but, uh, no, they wanted to use the brand. They didn't want to be you know, Joe Frost, LLC. They wanted to be your CMO Joe Frost. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wanted, and, and it's not as much control as it's just the operational support that we give. So they get a full-time marketing coordinator that works alongside them on every one of their clients. Um, They get a structured approach to uh, how to deliver fractional marketing. Um, We're not telling them how to market. We're not telling them what tactics to use, but we're telling them that in our engagement, we always start with an audit. We do collaborative two-year planning. Then we do 90-day sprints. And then we've got all the materials and tools and resources so that you can deliver that service to your clients and the clients love it. We've got the technology they can use. We've got the website they can use. And we do lead generation to help them build clients. So they join us, they get all of that. Uh, that's what they pay for as a franchise. Uh, but the ones that don't want it are people that are in between full-time jobs. Like they're just tire kicking uh, or they've already got a successful consulting business and they're happy doing what they're doing and they don't want to change their ways because their way works for them. You know, our ways, our way is different. Um Or they're just not ready. They're not ready to make that long-term commitment. They just want to try it for a little bit. Uh, So that's, I think, where we differentiate is is because it's a franchise. It's now given both sides a better candidate and a better match. We've got CMOs that are more committed and we have clients that are getting somebody who's not going to just come and go.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think it's a great platform that you've created. And especially with the trend towards entrepreneurship and people, a ton of people starting small businesses over the last several years. I think that there's going to be a growing need for more fractional professionals, and I'm excited to see where you guys take it.
0: Yeah, thanks. I, we're excited too. Well, this has been a really good conversation. I know we're uh, we're we're running up on our time, but uh, I wanted to thank you for for everything that uh, that we've talked about today. It's been been fun we kind of went all over the place I think the uh, most fun was talking about the rock chalk Jayhawks and hoping I the to rock chalk. Win. <laughs> yeah I, I
1: uh, I'm hoping so maybe I'll, I'll shoot you some emails uh, if I uh, you know it, if it's good news if it's bad yeah. news I'll be well, sulking but uh, I, I'm a, about it
0: ever again if it's bad yeah news. <laughs> yeah we just
1: we erase it from our memories you Thank know
0: exactly that, we'll, cut so, that, we'll cut that bit. I'll call the editor on Monday. Hey, can you pull yeah. that out?
1: <laughs> yeah, we should have uh, we should have just predicted what happened, and then we could have edited it in, and we would have looked like you know we're Nostradamus or something. That would have been good. Yeah. Uh,
0: what's the best way for people to get a hold of you?
1: Uh, I would say uh, email is is great. Uh, it's Chris C H R I S at Kimza K I M S A Group that's a great way. Uh, you can also go on our website, and there's something you can click to reach out to us. We we'll have engaged the, Joe, yeah. so it's we'll probably not as optimal as it could be.
0: Yeah. We'll have the show notes with, with all the different ways to get you, but the best way is just send you an email. So
1: yeah, send an email. Um, I don't know if I'll put my cell phone number on there, but I, I generally, once I start engaging, I align to whatever the, the, the client wants. We've got people who like to text, uh, email, some who only do phone calls, it, it, you know, some who don't have emails and we have to send them letters in the mail, uh, things like that. But
0: yeah. we're adaptable. All right. Well, and thanks to all of our listeners. I hope you had a, a good time like, uh, like I did with Chris and uh, we will catch you the next time. All righty. Thanks so much, Joe. Yep. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap. There's another successful episode of the Fractional C-Suite Retreat. See our show notes and more episodes at fractionalcsuiteletreat.com. This podcast is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow, save time and money with better marketing strategy and fractional execution. Visit them at yorcmo.com, yourcmo.com. Spelled wrong on purpose.